All right, folks, take out your pew Bibles. That's the uh, blue ones that are, uh, in most cases, they're going to be in the front of you. And you're going to turn to page 483 in your pew Bibles. The book of Esther. I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 to 9 of Esther, give you a little flavor of what we'll begin looking at this morning. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to the silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And one text in the New Testament, Romans 8 and verse 28, God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Congregation, the grass does wither and the flowers fade away. But the word of our God stands forever, to which you respond by saying, Hallelujah and thanks be to God. Our God, come with almighty power. And as we begin to give attention to this most unusual Bible book of Esther. We pray, our Lord, that we will see that in many, many ways, this book is the book that helps us most in our earthly pilgrimage, at least most of the books in the Old Testament. We pray these things in the name of the God of the Old and the New Testaments, our Lord Jesus Christ, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. 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 Please be seated. I think one of the biggest challenges of presenting the gospel in our day of the many that are there is calling people to faith in what you don't see to a world that is dominated by what it sees. I think that's probably our our greatest challenge um, this evening. Uh, there will be people watching. Uh, team from Kansas City, team from Philadelphia, on a, a gorgeously illuminated athletic field. 
and uh, all the action that's there for that time. The people will be watching the commercials. Some who don't even like football will be watching the commercials, whether it be for, for beer or for automobiles or for trucks or for the mats or whatever it would be. But they're watching uh, these very well-done and very expensive commercials. And then you hear the sounds of, of the crowds that are cheering on these teams, and it's spoken of for days and days afterwards. So you see, this, this, is, this is a world... This is a world of sight. It's a world of senses. And it's very difficult to communicate to a world dominated by that. The truths of this God that you can't even see. Okay. Well, that is what brings us to the book of Esther. If C.S. Lewis is regarded as the most unlikely convert, Esther is clearly the most unlikely book of the Bible, or even for the Bible. For example, the Bible, the Word of God, there's not one mention of God in the book of Esther. There is not a mention of prayer in the book of Esther. There's no mention of the temple in the book of Esther, even though it's an Old Testament book, and the temple was the center of religious life. There's no, in fact, there's not even a mention of Jerusalem in, in the book of Esther. No one prays in the book of Esther. And even though the book has a lot of feasts in it, there's no mention of any dietary laws. And the book centers around a woman who wins a beauty contest. She's a Jewish woman who goes to bed with and loses her virginity with a Gentile leader. Totally, totally unlike what you would expect in a book of the Bible. And what's added in this is this woman shows a very deep desire for revenge. Okay, And that's why one person writing about Esther says the book is full of disquieting moral misgivings disquieting it doesn't just doesn't ring right to you moral misgivings why why do these things happen but it's in the book of esther a book of the bible and why preach on the book of esther well we're going to answer that in a little bit because the outline for the sermon is number one why and that is why i'll be preaching on the book of esther number two is what what's this book about and and uh, also it can be when why what and so what? There's the outline. Oh, that's an easy one to remember, right? Why, what, and so what? I thought long and hard about saying this, but I'll, I'll stick by it. Although I'm open to be corrected, but I think I could correct you if you disagree. <laughs> there is no book in the Old Testament that will bring you more encouragement than the book of Esther. I didn't say more instruction but more encouragement. There's no book in the Old Testament that will bring you more encouragement and even hope than the book of Esther. Real quick personal illustration. Um, January was a very, very low month for me. Um, and, and Margaret was helpful as we're trying to put this together. Thank the Lord, Margaret doesn't, the Lord doesn't let Margaret get low and I'm low and vice versa. But Margaret at one point said, Bill, what you're experiencing is what I experienced 
after delivering Elizabeth, postpartum depression. And what she meant by that was this. Last year, you have, you have the, the, um, we have the conception of a facility. We purchased this facility in March of last year. And there's the gestation period and formation period where this building was being remodeled. And then there was the delivery date on September 11th when we had our inaugural service. And then there's the early nurturing date of those last four months of the year, which included Thanksgiving and Christmas and for the beginning of the year when everything is crazy and it was exhausting. And ecclesiastical postpartum depression sent in for your pastor beginning in January. It was just a low, low time. I had already decided months ago that I wanted to preach on Esther. And so during the month of January and to today, a lot of meditating on the book of Esther, lots. I have never derived such encouragement and such hope from any book of the Old Testament from this. I really, and I'm not overstating the case. So we're going to venture into the book of Esther this morning. I hope it does for you even beyond what it did for me. So here we go. Why Esther? And this morning I am going to stick, when I preach on a long text, you don't usually need to use many notes, at least I don't, but uh, what this is more topical today as we introduce the book, so allow me to stay close to my notes, otherwise we'll be here till who knows when. I hope you're warm enough, you're getting warmed up, it seems to be warming up in here. Why Esther? Esther is a story, it's a true story, it's a story. Um, if you want a more technical word, it's a narrative. It's, it's a narrative. It tells you about something that really happened in a real place, in a real time, with real people. Most of my preaching, if not all of it, since we've moved to this facility, has been, technical word, didactic, propositional. You take teachings in the Word of God, and you open them up, and you explain them, and you apply them. Uh, the whole series, Here We Stand, was didactic, propositional statements about what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about the church. That's didactic, that's propositional preaching. Or even last week, uh, The Church Life for Dummies was a series of opening up of the specific text of the scriptures. Really, you just have to read them, and, and, the, and the application just teems, Okay. This, though, is a story. And what do stories do? Let someone just say, let me tell you a story. And it invites you in. You, you, you want to hear. You want to know what's going on. Why is that? Because all of life is a story, folks. You have your own individual story. You have your family story. You go back. You have your genealogical story. You have your story when it comes to work. You have stories when it comes to your neighborhood. All of us, our life is story. And, and a story invites you into it. Uh, in a way, even, even if the didactic preaching doesn't do, I, I want to be a part of this. What's the story? This year? So, so that's part of the purpose. That's, that's number one. Number two, stories develop relationships. When, when, when you tell someone, oh, and be careful how you do this, because more people want to tell you about their story than they want to hear about yours, but you know the point. So let me tell you a little bit about the story of my life. You're, you're opening up and you're asking those persons to whom you're speaking uh, just to, to be part of, 
of your life and of your world. And when people tell you their stories, even if you've heard their stories many, many times, enter into it again and again and again because stories, stories build a sense of relationship. And that's what God wants to come as his word is preached. This is his story. Not First Esther's story, but his. And God is inviting you to have a relationship with him. But that's not all that stories do. Stories build community. You sit around the fire in the summer with your family, and they say, Dad, tell us a, a little bit about, uh, let's talk a little bit about when we went camping or when we went to, to Disney World, if you still want to go to Disney World, and, and uh, when, when we would just do things around the house cooking. That's part of your, that's part of your community. It's part of your history. It's part of your life. It's part of your reality. And so the stories in the scriptures invite you to be part of them. They, they, the Lord, they, essentially when you say, Lord, tell me your story through Esther, the Lord says, let me tell you the story so that you might have a relationship with me. And, and, and it's, it's community because, folks, this is our history too. Remember, this is about Israel and the Old Testament. And this is a huge piece of the Old Testament. You'll find out how huge toward the end. But uh, it's a huge piece of Israel's history. In a sense, it's kind of a culmination of revealed history of the Old Testament. But it's your history too. Because the Bible says that if you think of, of, of Israel as, as a trunk, you believing in Christ are grafted into it. And, and all of the all of the sap and all of the sweetness and all of the moisture and all the riches of this book are yours. Okay, so that's just one reason. Okay, so, so stories. And it's good for your pastor to preach a story. This is, this is not a story like Mark, which was the Gospels. We went through part of that. This is an Old Testament story. And so if, if, the, if the New Testament begins with telling us about Jesus who comes into the world and what that means, the Old Testament stories give us shadows of the Christ who's to come. And so if you're reading the history, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, which is a second account of, of a true account of Israel, or you're reading Kings, or you're reading Chronicles, or you're reading Samuel, or whatever, these are stories, and they're all full of these shadows that lead us to Christ. And folks, there's a whole lot more ways to misunderstand the Old Testament than understand it rightly. Hopefully this will help you out a little bit. Okay, so that's just, that's just number one. Number two, this is a time period that's unfamiliar to most Christians. In fact, most people, other than Jews. Jews are very familiar with it, for reasons to be obvious. But for us, it, we're not as familiar with it. Here's kind of the span of the Old Testament. You know, God creates the world, and then there's a fall, there's a flood that inundates the whole world, and God, God is preserving the world. Why? Well, you find that out as God, not long after that, calls Abram to be his, Abraham and his family to be his people in the world. And those families grow, and they, they would eventually become what we would know of as the land of Israel, Israel that will be in bondage in Egypt, but would be delivered by God himself and led by Moses as they go into the wilderness and then in the promised land. And then those families and that, that nation, they become a kingdom, and they have a king called David. You can see how all of this is pointing you forward to Christ. And uh, it doesn't take too long. 
after Saul and David. And there's a division, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and the books of Chronicles and Kings, Second Kings, tell you about the, basically the woeful decline of Israel and of Judah. Israel eventually wiped out by the Assyrians, really brutal, wicked people. And then later, Judah wiped out by the Babylonians, who were not far behind the Assyrians as being wicked and brutal. And what was the chosen nation is now left with but a remnant in the land. Most of the people are brought to Babylon. That's when you read about Daniel and Ezekiel. They write during that time when Israel is in Babylon. Seventy years of captivity. And then God brings a change. You'll hear about, more about that in a moment. But God brings a change. The Israelites, many of them, not all of them, in fact, not even most of them, go back into the land, the post-exilic period after exile in Babylon. But it's even after that, after the Israelites are permitted to go back into the land, they're led by Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're preached to by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, even after that, something happens that gives you the lesson of the whole Bible in a book. It, it's, a, it's a remarkable way that Esther was probably the next to the last book of the Old Testament written with Malachi being the last. Malachi is really a bridge pointing you forward to John the baptizer and the Lord Jesus. Esther is the culmination in the Old Testament of the history of the Jews. It's fascinating. So, so we'll learn more about that time period. That's why really the text for today is in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, that one who reigned over 127 provinces, so he wouldn't be confused with anyone else. But what's interesting is, even though this is very much about Israel, there is more application to us in this book than probably any other Old Testament historical book. And you'll, you'll see why a little bit later. Number three, why Esther? I'm convincing you why it's so important to take the next few weeks on Esther. It gives you a perspective on what is really important in history in the world around us. It gives you a perspective on what is really important in history and in the world around us. If you lived in the time of Ahasuerus, which would have been five, almost six centuries before the birth of Christ, if you had a, a newspaper, we'll, 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 call it, we'll call it the Susa Gazette, how's that? Or we'll call it the Persian Times, all right? You're reading the newspaper. I'll tell you what your headline story would be every day. It would be about the war that was going on between Persia and Greece, which Persia eventually lost. That, that would be the story, and it wouldn't even be like Ukraine and Russia. It would be more like a world war that went on for years and years and years. That was the big story. You have your own sons and daughters going into battle in this far country, and are you going to win or not against this growing nation of Greece? That would be the big story. It's not even mentioned in Esther. Not once. Because that, in terms of what God is doing in history, is of only secondary or tertiary importance. Remember, 
New Testament, Jesus is given as head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, all human history. Now, what's going on in the Ukraine? Now, what's going on in Syria and Turkey? What's going on in the persecuted nations? What? That's scaffolding within which the Lord Jesus is building his church. And just as what was happening in Persia, uh, that was the nation of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, was scaffolding to what God was doing in the book of Esther. Okay, so, so this helps us get a perspective on how to view the world and keep our perspective. The last reason is this. Romans 15 and verse 4. L- listen to what Romans 15 and verse 4 says. Whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, which was written from about 1,425 years before the birth of Christ until about 425 years before the birth of Christ, over a 1,000-year period, whatever was written in former days, including Esther, was written for our encouragement, that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Folks, let's face it, many Christians are utterly hopeless today. You pay attention to whatever media you pay attention to, and it conveys the fact that God is not in the thoughts of most people. And if he is in their thoughts, they hate him. You know, the tenets of the new atheism. Number one, there is no God. Number two, I hate him. That's the tenets of the new atheism. And, and you get that. And churches closing up. Churches that don't have a lot of young people in them, unless they do certain things to attract them. And a general lack of interest in the Word of God. And Christians are very discouraged. I'll bet many of you are too. And you frankly want to give up. Through the encouragement and the endurance of the Scriptures, you might have hope. And Esther, I assure you, will give you a lot of hope about how God is working in the world. Okay? So, so there's, your, there's your four reasons for going through. It's a book. It's a story. God invites you into relationship with it. It uh, helps us out understanding a, a period of history. Most of us don't understand it. It's full of significance. It'll give you a perspective on what is really important in history and the world around us. And you get hope from it as part of the things written in the former days. Okay, Now, that brings us to Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Just the first verse, okay? In the days of Ahasuerus, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, which is actually the Greek name or the Hebrew name of a man named Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. There's a good one for spelling bee. Ahasuerus, the Hebrew name for Persian name Xerxes, the Ahasuerus, and just so you don't confuse it with his son, Ahasuerus II, Artaxerxes. This was the one who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. It's interesting. This book is a story, but it's full of facts, just loaded with, with this treasure trove of facts about the history of Persia at that time. And you could write volumes 
of what has been discovered in archaeology that always, always, always confirms the things that are written in this book. Uh, it's quite fascinating. But anyway, but so, so this, this, is, this is the time period that we're dealing with. What time period is it? Well, let's go to 539 years before the birth of Christ. Way, 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 way back, okay? And it is 70 years after the first taking in B.C. 605 of before Christ, 605 years before the birth of Christ, the taking of Israelites from, as, as, you, would, as you would be looking at it, from Israel to Babylon to the Babylonian Empire, three waves, one of which included the taking of Daniel, the other that took the taking of Ezekiel, and going into Babylon beginning in 539 B.C., and, or rather, that, that began in 605, 539 B.C. A man named Cyrus comes to power. Fascinating how this happens. In 539 B.C., there's a king in Babylon. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. There's a king in Babylon, and he's having a real bacchanal of a party. Everybody's drunk out of their minds. And they're right there in the capital. They're even desecrating the items that were taken from the temple. And they are drunk as can be. They didn't realize that some hours before, the Euphrates River had been dammed up at a point, and there was a muddy but passable walkway by which a whole force of Babylonian troops went under the walls of Babylon and came up in the palace and wiped out that king of whom God had said to him through Daniel, you are weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. And it wasn't long after he was done. Persia, led by Cyrus, replaces Babylon as the world power at that time, 539 years before the birth of Christ. And Cyrus was a very interesting leader. He knew that Babylon was made up of many, many different nationalities, including Jews, and he wanted to curry favor with the people, so he gave orders. And you've heard of law of Medes and the Persians. When a leader gave an order, you obeyed it. And people were allowed to go back to their own nations. Now, he wasn't being uh, just completely uh, disinterested in that. He knew that if he favored them, they would favor him. They wouldn't rebel against him, and he would have kind of a benevolent monarchy or benevolent empire. And among the edicts, among the first actually, Cyrus gives the edict for the Israelites in Babylon to go back to their land, and he gives them in time permission not only to rebuild their homes, to rebuild the temple, and to rebuild their walls, but they are privileged in 539 B.C. to go back to the land of Israel and Persia becomes the great power. Now, here's how you picture this, okay? If you, if you think of this area as you're looking on a map, imagine Pakistan and Iran. Susa that we'll read of was, was in modern-day Iran. 
and this empire on on the on the east goes this way and then it kind of has a huge arc that goes all the way up to the southern part of modern turkey it goes all the way over to egypt interestingly it includes the land of Israel, and even the northern part of Africa, what's mentioned here is Ethiopia, which was a much larger area than modern Ethiopia, uh, but the northern and the, and the eastern parts of Africa were all in the swath of what was called the Persian Empire, the largest empire of its day, and Cyrus is the leader. He's called my shepherd, He's a pagan. God calls him my shepherd. Why? Because it's by the edict of Cyrus that the Lord's sheep get to go back to the pastures of Israel. And you see how God uses even a pagan king to accomplish his purposes. That's something of a, of a backdrop to what Esther's about as well. But when you come to Esther, we've got to go forward a little bit. Okay, We go forward by about 50 years it's roughly 486 years before the birth of Christ, 5th century. So how do you get 5th century out of 486 B.C.? Listen, the years century before Christ comes, B.C. 99 to B.C. 0, right? That's the 1st century, B.C. And then you go up so that when you're in the 200s or the 100s, it's the 2nd century B.C., the 200s is the 3rd century B.C., the 400s are the 5th century B.C., and that's where we are, about 500 years before the birth of Christ, about 486 B.C., and we are in Susa. Susa would be over in this area. It would be in modern Iran. It was the capital. It was the citadel of this land of Persia. And Ahasuerus... Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes, is the leader of the land. He reigned from about 486 to 465. We know a lot about him from the scriptures and from other histories of the time. He was kind of a, oh, I don't know, a Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise combined. He was regarded as very, very handsome. He was, regard, he was very, very tall. He was a very ambitious leader. He was a man who was also quite ruthless, as you'll learn in the book. He was a brutal warrior, and perhaps above all else, he was a tremendously jealous lover of the women in his harem. Tremendously, ferociously, viciously jealous was Ahasuerus. And just so you know, if, if, you, were, if you, were, you took this time with Ahasuerus in power here, if you were to go all the way over to China, uh, this will interest Nan in particular, this was about the time of Confucius, when Confucius was alive. Or if you were to go over this way and you come to Greece, uh, this was not only a time of growing of Greece as a, as a nation in which the principles of a republic would be very similar principles by which our nation was founded. But this was a time of, of Hippocrates, who was a, was a, 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 a surgeon. He was, a, he was concerned with health. Um, it was a time, our Socrates will love this, about the time Socrates lived, who was a, a philosopher. Pythagoras, who was a mathematician. Um, and so, so it was a, a real, it was a time of a lot of luminaries, okay? But this book focuses on 
Xerxes, otherwise known as Ahasuerus. So, so this is the setting of this book where the Israelites, most of them, are still in Persia. They are still in this area that was once Babylon. Ahasuerus is governing there. And even though the Bible does tell us a lot about the remnant that was in Israel after the exile, most of the Jews are here. And so there's a whole book about this. But see, it raises an interesting question. If the temple's here, and the religious leaders are here in Israel, and God is giving books telling us what's going on after the exile, what about these schlubs who were over here in Persia? What about these Jews? They don't have the temple, they don't have the tabernacle, they don't have Jerusalem, they don't have, they don't even have priests. Has God forgotten them? Has he abandoned them? Does he have a purpose for them? Well, Esther is designed, among other things, to deal with that. So, again, what about Esther? That's something of the history. There's two things, two themes, two motifs, there you go, that constantly come up in this book. One is reversals. God takes what seems to be the end of either an individual or a nation, and he not only reverses it so that it's not the end for the individual and the nation, it's the beginning of something so great you never would imagine it. Great reversals. One deals with a man named Mordecai, who was a relative of Esther, and Haman, who was an Agagite. Very similar. If you don't know what Agagite is, hang in there. In a few weeks you'll find out. Very significant. Agag was an enemy of God's people. And Haman, the word of God says, was an Agagite. And he's going to be out to destroy Mordecai. Great reversal is what happens. Even further, Haman hates the Jews. Haman wants the Jews wiped out. And under his influence, Ahasuerus writes an edict. The Jews are to be destroyed. Little does he realize that his favored concubine, the woman that he enjoys most in his intimacy, is a Jewess. She doesn't even tell him that. He doesn't know that. But God's going to work so that this decree, laws of Medes and the Persians, if a decree is written that you wipe out the Israelites, you can't undo it. But something happens, and it's a great reversal, so that Israel is not only preserved, but Israel will grow as a nation. Great, great reversal. Okay, so you see, that, 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 that motif is in the book. Again, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And you see what I mean by shadows, folks. There was evil meant against a particular person who had been born of a virgin made under the law. And he was hated, even by his own country people. 
and by the edict of a civil leader, he is to be crucified, put to death, so that this land will be rid of this scourge. And by his own death, he defeats death on the cross. And you see that the theme that you see in shadow form in Esther has its remarkable fulfillment a few hundred years later in Christ. So anyway, it's a great, great, great reversal. That, that's one of the themes. The other is this, and they're connected. This book is about God's providence. Not Providence, Rhode Island, okay? Providence is the way God plans things out. God's providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, and I would add to what's in the catechism all the time. Listen again. What are God's works of providence? His most holy, never makes mistakes. Wise. Every end is satisfied with perfect means. Holy, wise, and powerful. You're not going to stop it. God does what he wills. Most holy, wise, and powerful. Preserving and governing all his creatures. Like birds and lilies. And all their actions. All the time. That's what Isaiah, or that's what Esther is all about. God's works of providence. As one person put it, and big words, but so beautifully said, the invisible, inscrutable ways God governs all creatures, all creatures, activities, and circumstances. Now listen, the invisible and inscrutable ways God governs all creatures, all actions, and all circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. I'll read it again. The invisible and inscrutable, you don't, you don't understand it. it. In fact, it might even not make sense at the time. And you don't see God's hand. You don't, you don't see God coming down and moving people. Invisible and inscrutable ways, God governs all creatures, and all means all, okay? All creatures, all actions, and all circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. It's not like God is going to come down and when you're hungry, multiply loaves and fishes to feed you. He does that on occasion in the gospel. But that's not the normal way God does things. What does that mean? You have to get a train, a Long Island Railroad, to get into New York City at a certain time so, so that you can hopefully catch another train, a subway, to get to your class on time at a university in the city. That's ordinary. You look, get the schedule, you do it. It's not ordinary to God. God does extraordinary things through things like that. You go to your favorite falafel dealer. Ah, wonderful falafel. And you make your order and you get to savor that a falafel. Very ordinary, nothing miraculous. God has amazing purposes. And just those choices of what you do. You don't see God's hand. Nothing seems to be spectacular. Our God is the God who in the ordinary 
always does the extraordinary. So, so and you're going to see this. You'll see this in the book of Esther. Okay, so that's God's providence. And that's, that brings us to, in, in, the in the nature of the case, so what? What's the relevance of this book? Well, for the Jews, this book was so important, many of them would memorize the whole book. Because the book will end with something called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim was a feast celebrating the destruction of Agagites, of Amalekites. It was a feast that celebrated their victory when they were going to be destroyed. And, and if you ever have the opportunity to be in a synagogue to observe a Feast of Purim ceremony where the whole book of Esther is read in the Hebrew, it's quite an experience. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, you'll hear, Boo! Boo! And, and you'll hear with a section on the destruction of the Agagites, Yay! Yay! Hurrah! They have all kinds of noisemakers that they make. The Feast of Purim. Because it celebrated Israel overriding the pagans in the Great Reversal. Now fast forward. In the concentration camps, Belsen and Treblinka and Dachau and others, Jews would pool their knowledge of the book of Esther and write it out and read it. It was their encouragement, their hope, that the God who did not abandon Israel at that time would not abandon them in the concentration camps. And that book had such power that Adolf Hitler hated it. Imagine you're someone who individually is responsible for the killing of Jews and you're leading a movement that is destroying Jews. And you hear the book of Esther and the Feast of Purim so that if you were found citing or reading Esther, you're done. That's how important that book is for Jews. For Christians, very similar. Because as we're going through the book and you see God's providence, you must see how all of this points you forward to the great reversal where the Haman of an apostate Israel is stopped by the great Lord Jesus Christ, far greater than Mordecai in every way, and he's exalted. He's exalted. And that victory that Israel would get over its enemies, that is exactly what's in view. When the Lord Jesus Christ, who'd been crucified and was raised from the dead, said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So you see Isaiah... Isaiah just, just opens up and screams the gospel. And that's why Christians just relish it, even, even as Jews do. But there's another reason. Esther teaches us that God unfolds, not reveals, 
but he unfolds his will like like a flower. God has ordained that there be uh, pretty soon crocuses, and at this rate, really soon crocuses, and and they come out, and and there's and there's a, a bud that's that's there in the garden, and and that's the crocus. But to see what it really is, it has to unfold in all of its beauty. Now God doesn't reveal his will by providences. I'll give you an example in a moment. But God reveals his will in the scriptures, line upon line, precept upon precept. If they don't speak according to this word, and then there's no dawn, all scripture is given, that we might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. The, the will of God, the revealed will of God, in that sense, that's given to us in the Bible, Period. Not by your impulses, not by your feelings, not by the way you feel when you get up in the morning. What does God say in his word? That's the revealed will of God. But God unfolds his will for your life, his, his, his personally decreed will for your life, and his life for the life of the church. Okay, God reveals that will, he, he unfolds that will in what he does in history. We didn't know in the Bible that we were going to be able to purchase a facility in Comac, formerly called Cleft of the Rock Bible Church. Could you imagine if somebody came to one of the elders and said, look what I read in the scriptures. Guess what God has for the haven. There's a building in Comac, and, and, and the Lord told me from the book of Revelation that you're going to get... Yeah, that person got some problems, some screws loose in it. He wouldn't say that. And God promises to provide our needs. God promises that he'll be with us, okay? God unfolds his will in the purchase of a building and the improvements of it, and he'll unfold his will about how the church grows. Right? So you get the point. So there's revealed will in the scriptures. There, there is the will of God that is unfolded in God's providence, and that's what providence is, and that's what your life is all about. In specific things that seem insignificant each day, God is unfolding his will. Why, why is that important? Well, there are many, and they're well-meaning Christians. And they'll say things like, am I really in the center of God's will? Have I missed God's will? Am I out of God's will? How do I know God's will? And by that, they're talking about what I should do next. Should I go on the mission field? Should I go to school? What course should I take? And the Bible didn't speak about those things. But then Christians will say, well, well then, okay, I don't have a biblical precept. Well, I've got to be really careful that, that, I, that I'm not, that this is God's will. I'm not going this way. I'm not going that way. I'm not out of God's will. I've got to be very careful. Whoa, wait a minute. The Bible never talks like that. The Bible talks about obedience to his word. It talks about faith in his word. Are we perfect? No, we're not. No, we're not. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Do we sin against light? You bet. Be honest. We all do. Do at times we snub God when we ought to be paying attention to him? Yes. Are there times that our hearts are just dull to the things that you bet? That's, that's the real world, folks. Do we make mistakes? Lots of them. Led by your pastor. Do we do things we regret? We sure do. Do our lives 
in many cases contradict what our profession of faith is. Sadly, sadly, yes. But that's the real world. doesn't make it right. It's the unfolding of what reality is in our lives. It's not the revealed will of God. See, I don't say, well, oh God, I had a really horrible, lustful thought the other day. But you forgave it, so that's okay. You don't live like that. The revealed will of God is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's the standard. Do we keep it all the time? No, we don't. Does that mean God isn't sovereign? Nope. Does it mean that God makes mistakes? Nope. Does it mean that you're out of the will of God? Reveal the will of God? Yes. But folks, you're always in the will of God in terms of what he's unfolding. And what Esther teaches us is the things that you may think next to nothing about are the things that really make you what you are. Fascinating. And so many things written about this. It's... it's See, we, use the, we can use the word here in the right sense, coincidence. A coincidence, this is my decision, this is what I decide to do, this is what goes on, and God's at work in all of it. That's a coincidence. But when you think about those coincidences, the first thing isn't what you do. The first thing is what God does. And the first thing isn't your character. The first thing is, what's God's character? And what is he working out in those seemingly ordinary providences in life? Well, that is the theme of Esther. All things work together for good (laughs) to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Don't say, well, I can live the way you want. You live the way you want, you'll destroy yourself. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a Jesus follower. I want to follow. Praise the Lord. That's what you need to be. Are you going to blow it? Yes. God doesn't. Are you going to make mistakes? Yes, God doesn't. That's what Esther is about. As Karen Jobes, Karen Jobes' commentary, I thank the Lord for the way God used, has used, and is using that commentary to minister to me as it has to others. A remarkable book. It takes a, takes a woman to write about a woman like Esther and a brilliant Old Testament scholar. But Karen Jobes ends her introduction to the book by saying, God is working providentially in the completely secular and ungodly course of human events. Who? God is working providentially in the completely secular, worldly, and ungodly course of human events. Do you remind yourself of that when you listen to the news? Or what they say the news is? To save his people against all expectation and, from, and, and to bring all of history to culmination in Christ. Wow! I didn't expect you to do this. Well, God did. He's going to bring glory to Christ. There is no plot, no plan, that can thwart God's purposes that stretch from Genesis to Revelation. Esther lies between the two, between Genesis and Revelation. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. 
Jesus' last words were, Go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And then, ironically, he left. (laughs) Nevertheless, our Lord is omnipotently present, even where he is most conspicuously absent. Isn't that great? Is that relevant to you? Yeah, I think, I think everything, it's all relevant to you. And she adds too, beneath the surface of seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work which can neither be explained nor thwarted. Wow. King Ahasuerus, handsome Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt combined, he throws a huge gala, a party, for half a year Persia is to celebrate. And for one full week, there is a feast like nobody's ever imagined that is there. I mean, this, this gets recorded here. It's absolutely amazing. And he wants his beauty queen wife, Mrs. Persia, to be there on that occasion and he bids her to come to the feast. Proto-feminist. She doesn't come. Uh-oh. And Israel and the world have never been the same since. You'll begin to find out what that means next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, we bless you that we can take this story, this true story. And Lord, thank you that this most unusual book of Holy Scripture is filled with historical items that have been verified. Oh, not that we need that, but it confirms for us over and over again, these things really happened. But Lord, that doesn't tell us the significance of the things. Your word tells us the significance of the things. You are, to use what we learned in the first part of our worship, even though people mean evil against you and your people, you turn it for good. And we're learning that. And we're learning within that that there's no, nothing is insignificant in our lives. And Esther teaches us that. So Lord, thank you that we can begin this journey in this book But for our encouragement as we close the sermon this morning, remind us over and over and over again of your wonderful sovereignty. You are the God of whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.